Welcome to the launch of the women's edition of Fingerpost magazine. Um, delighted that Foil Women's Information Network have guest edited and Catherine has guest edited the issue this time round. So I'm joined by Catherine Cook from Foil Women's Information Network. Catherine, how's the form? Not so bad, Jared. What about yourself? How are you coping? Hi, Grant. Struggling on. Yeah, virtual hi. life, etc. So listen, thanks a million for editing this uh, issue. Um, really broad range of articles, as you'd expect, given the broad range of work that Foil Women's Information Network's involved. How do you find the, the editing of it? Hi. It was a wee bit, uh, it's a wee bit all over the place because there's so much that you could put in. And, you know, um, you don't want it to be too academic. You wanted people to, I wanted people to be able to read it and so that's why the poetry is there because the poetry is there. Um, our mother's the poem was done by a group of women from the waterside mm-hmm. and the one where is Mo Wollum's statue was written by uh, Margo from Gaia Women's Group and um, those are just heartfelt words from, from grassroots women you know and um, it was part of her story project that we'd done, looking at inspirational women throughout um, Northern Ireland. And the group of women from Listen to Galvin Women's Group in the Waterside felt that their mother was their role model and was their inspiration for the work that they, they continue to do. Hmm. But it was difficult enough, you know, Jared, because have things moved or have they not? You know, like we, I seem to be being battling for the same things for 30 odd years. And woman's uh, voice is still not really to the fore. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's highlighted in a, in a couple of the articles, for sure. It's like I really learned from them. Um, can you tell us about a couple of the other articles. It's like you've already talked about the, the poetry that's in there, but I know um, we're going to hear from George O'Kane and Mabel Bryant. Unfortunately, Kathy Higgins couldn't join us today. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about the article that she's written, maybe? Sure, Kathy's... Um, Kathy's article is about um, patriarchy and the issues of patriarchy. And Kathy was to be on today and she hasn't, she's not feeling too well. So get well soon, Kathy. Mm. But, you know, she was going to maybe give a, a, an insight on the what was, what is patriarchy? What does it mean? You know, how do feminists feel about patriarchy? Um, and I suppose maybe giving us a few examples and, um, she was going to talk about how it was going to be, how it's practiced today, because whenever you think about patriarchy, you need to see it in action, nearly, to understand it, you know, and um, she's some really, really, really good examples, so she has, and then I was going to ask her, I suppose a few things, like, what do you call a male feminist? You know, is there such a thing as a male feminist? I don't know, and um, then just how society would need to change and how we as as a general society need to maybe change our ways with the future generations. Things like typical boys' toys, typical girls' toys, you know, why do boys wear blue and girls wear pink? Mm. So it was all about about um, the whole issue of patriarchy and how it affects the society that we live in. That was Cathy's um, article. And then we had another um article from um on the bill of rights for women from rachel powell from rachel who is the woman sector lobbyist who unfortunately um really 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 good speaker 
but um, couldn't couldn't be with us today. And again, her article was a, around how women from the women's sector have lobbied for Bill of Rights since 1998, since the Belfast Agreement, you know, and I suppose the long and the shorts of it is, if you don't have a Bill of Rights for everybody, how can you have a Bill of Rights for women? Yeah. You know, and, and she, she talks about about that and about the campaigning for that and, and, and so on. And so those are some of the articles that are that are in um, the finger post. Uh, I hope there's enough um, variety that other women can can get something from it. You know, it's not the same sameness. It's a, it's a wee bit different. Yeah. And different, different sections. Brilliant. No, I really enjoyed reading the articles. They're, they're really good. So we're going to hear now, I'm going to step down and you're going to have a conversation with a couple of the contributors, George O'Kane and Maeve O'Brien as well. So George is up first, I believe. Yes, she is indeed. Thank you, George. No bother. Hiya. Georgia, how are you? All right, Catherine, how are you getting on? Not so bad. How are you getting on? Ah, uh, Grant. Well, thank you very much for writing um, your piece for um, the woman's issue of Fingerpost. And you give a really very insightful um, piece around intersectionality and what does it mean? So maybe the first question I'd like to ask you, Georgia, is why did you choose that topic? Yeah, um, I just graduated from my master's degree there in December and I spent the year writing a thesis on intersectional feminism in Northern Ireland specifically. Um, so it's really uh, my wheelhouse, as I would say. It's where my uh, yeah. feminist, uh, you know, interest lies. So I thought, you know, write about what you know. Yeah. So maybe in your own words, could you explain uh, what it is, what it means and how maybe it's impacted by inequality? Yeah, so intersectionality is maybe better understood as not something that's impacted by inequality, but something that explains inequality. So it was coined in 1989 by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw in the States. And basically what intersectionality says, that, says is that all of our social categories, all the aspects of our identity, so your gender, your race, your religion, your class, anything that can be used to define you, all these categories are interconnected and they overlap. So intersectionality says that through recognizing where these categories interconnect, we can examine how the relationship between them compounds to uh, create unique experiences of disadvantage or privilege as the case may be, meaning we can better understand how power is being distributed and experienced and reproduced in society. So to give an example, uh, if we take the example of race and gender as uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, originally employed the theory uh, to demonstrate, um, if we take a white woman, that woman might experience an equality on the basis of her gender. Whereas if we also take a black woman, that woman is likely to experience inequality on the basis of her gender, but also experience it on the basis of her skin color. So there's two inequalities at play there for the black woman. So it's the compounding effects of these two inequalities, which create a form of disadvantage, which will be unique to this woman or to a group of women that share the same social categories, but uh, will not be the same as the inequality experienced by the white woman because um, the skin color is an additional layer of inequality yeah uh so intersectionality is essentially just the theory that explains that of the compounding effects of multiple inequalities mm -hmm. very 
It's a very interesting topic and I really, really enjoyed, you know, so what would you say is an intersectional approach? Um, well, it's something that's majorly associated with feminism, but it can really be across, you know, any field, uh, anywhere where people are trying to consider inequality. So, for example, if you're doing an academic study or, you know, community project or you're part of a community group, anything that's targeting a particular group of people, uh, the intersectional approach would be meaning that you are making concerted efforts and actively trying to consider the complexity of the identity rather than just reducing people to a singular aspect of your identity. So if you're working with working class women, they're not just women, they're also working class. If you're working with refugee women, uh, they're not just women, they're refugees. Uh, and those are just a couple of examples. But so the intersectionality in this case allows you to understand how those systems of power and disadvantage occur in a more in-depth way so that anyone working in this area can move beyond seeing people as just those who are oppressed or those who do the oppressing because it's yeah. much more complex than that we can be both um so if you take the example again um of uh, a white woman if they want to go out and be feminists if they are only going to target other white women if they're going to ignore everyone else who doesn't match them exactly in their identity then they themselves, whilst they are being oppressed by patriarchal systems and that's what they're fighting against, they are also oppressing those other women who don't fit in exactly with them. So, um, yeah. yeah no I, I can kind of, I, I, I can understand it because I've faced it myself many a time and I would have said it was tokenism. You know, I would not have been able to use in those days the language of intersectionality because it wasn't framed as such then, and it wasn't as well known. But I have been asked to sit on boards, you know, and when I think about it, was it A, because it was a woman and they needed a gender balance? Was it B, because it was a Protestant and they had very few Protestant women sitting on boards? You know, or, and then you would, people would have said, ah, but, that, but that's only tokenism, but you can use it to your advantage as well, you know, and, and it can be advantage in many ways as well. But at times, sometimes I think when you know it, you can kind of use it to your advantage. It, it is definitely a tool to move beyond tokenism because um, it identifies the need for these, uh, for people with different aspects of identity and it mm -hmm. rationalizes why they're there. So anyone who could then make an accusation going, just a token, you just wanted them there to look good. No, yeah. the theory is there. This explains why they're there and why we need them. And it's interesting what you had said to Jared at the start about, you know, how far women have really come. And that my thesis was on as a centre sectionality in Northern Ireland. And it looked at, um, you know, my, my underpinning theory was I thought that Northern Ireland might be the perfect place because of the Protestant and Catholic uh, strife in the latter half of the last century. And that's, where our intersectionality, I believe, got its underpinning. Women had to recognise that they had differences. We weren't all the same. Yeah. We had different political beliefs. We had different religions, and they had to learn to work together and yeah. appreciate those. It's not just to, you know, always plaster over that and we'll all play ahead together. Mm -hmm. It's about recognising your differences and working to solve them together. Yeah. And I suppose, um, Georgia, my last kind of question would be, what challenges do you think... Um, young women in today's society, yourself in general, have to, have to face um, coming, coming forward. You know, we have moved slightly, but we haven't moved greatly. 
and um, there's lots of challenges out there and there's new challenges coming every day. So, you know, what would be the most um, or the biggest challenge that you think that a uh, younger woman in Northern Ireland will have to face? Um, well, this will be an issue st uh, stemming from the past and it's hard to shake off its essentialism. It is that um, notion that we should just lump all women together and that they'll be able to have a united women's movement and they're all going to have the exact same problems. Um, so for example, like you can't just assume that uh, every woman is going to have the same issues when it comes to childcare or uh, birth control or healthcare or anything. No two women think the same. And as a woman's network organization, we will, we would be blamed very often for sitting on the fence on some serious issues. You know, issues like we don't take a stance on abortion or, or anything like that, because we work with all women. We all have our own private thoughts and beliefs, but as an organization, we don't take a stance. And the reason that we don't is that our, our space and our organization is for all women. And, and our, our mantra is that we include all and exclude none. So if we were to take a stance on something, then you would be excluding other women who feel morally that they couldn't take part, you know, either way in your organization. So it is a big challenge for, for organizations as well, you know, to um, try and work with all women recognizing that they're not the same, that they all come from different places, different moral backgrounds, different religions, you know. Well, intersectionality is the perfect tool for that. It is that it is the exact tool, the, the thing you're mentioning there about the need to include all women, yeah. it is the exact tool through which to do that. Um, so if we look, for example, at, uh, you know, there's been a rise in anti-transgender feminism, which is going to be a major issue for my generation to deal with, where select women feel that, uh, trans women should not be included under the feminist umbrella because they cannot identify with them as women. But actually intersectionality shows that, you know, we're facing a lot of the same issues. And um, you were talking about grassroots feminism there in Northern Ireland. It has been the case and continues to be, as I found out through my thesis. That's where a lot of the work is still being done. It's not been done at the political level. It's the women and all the communities at the grassroots level. So if we keep employing intersectionality, all of our interests are going to be much better served. The, the rights of trans women, of black women, of gay women, of whoever, whatever social category you want to bring into it, they're all going to be better served. And the, uh, where we were talking about challenges there, one of the major challenges is just simply education. Yeah. Everyone who's working on these issues needs to be educated on it just to recognize it and in order to combat it. So yeah, moving forward, um, if we're, the feminist movement, women's movement, whatever, is going to keep progressing in Northern Ireland, in the UK, in Ireland, and Europe, wherever you want to go. It's about yeah. intersectional approaches to understand because once you move one movement forward, you should be bringing the next with you. You should be helping everyone at once. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Georgia. Um, um, I hope that uh, other people will uh, enjoy your uh, article. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. So thank you very much for taking the time to do that. And um, I'll speak to you again, Georgia. Thank you very Hi, much. Catherine. Have a good day. Hi, Maeve. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm grand. How's you? Oh, I'm good. It's good to see you. Hi. How are you keeping? 
I'm great. You look a million dollars. Love the hair oh. and the cows behind you. They're a beautiful bit of art. Well, you see, the, that bit of art behind me, they're my, they're my heifers. <laughs> you know? As you know, I have four daughters and one granddaughter. Well, there's five, <laughs> five heifers up on the wall. Oh, no. I'm sure they love that. <laughs> That's a family portrait. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I'll get it in the head tonight for them. <laughs> Never worry. Um, so, Maeve, how are you? I haven't seen you from you left Foil Women's Information Network and started your new. Your I new know. I know. I can miss you all so much, you know. Um, but I'm good. I'm, I'm just out of the sea. I'm, I'm glad this is a podcast because my hair scraped back and um, I'm just fresh out of the, the sea there. So, um, all's good up, up around the coast. That's good. Well, Maeve, you wrote a, uh, an article um, for the Finger Post magazine as well. Yes. And um, I'd just like to ask you a few wee questions about it, if that's okay. Absolutely, Catherine. Thank you so much for the opportunity to write for Finger Post too. No problem. Um, it's, it's, it's a, as I was talking to Jared earlier on, it's a mixed bag of, of people's opinions and people's views because mm-hmm. that's what the women's sector is all about. It's Absolutely. all about difference and respect and difference. And, you know, so Maeve, uh, when, when people read your article, um, there's a term that you've used on it, um, emotional labor in your mm-hmm. article. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could begin to describe what you meant by that term. Yeah, surely, Catherine. So emotional labor, it's, it's a term that has been used by like sociologists a lot to describe the sort of the work that predominantly women do that um, is obviously unpaid and, and unacknowledged, really. So say, for example, you're working as a waitress somewhere, um, you know, you have to be really nice and polite. You know, you have to be like, can I take your order? What would you like? And and it's that, you know, friendly, like, you know, upbeat persona that is very much emotional labor. Because imagine doing that. And I've been that soldier, you know, doing that for nine hours of your day. I've been, been really friendly and, you know, catering to everybody. And yes, you're in, you're in a job and paid. But there's a different expectation for women as to men, as to, you know, the, your demeanor. And you can kind of trace that more broadly out to looking at, you know, for example, like women say you're going through a difficult time, your friends going through a difficult time. You're there for your friend. You know, you're there. You're there for your family. You're putting in so much work, caregiving work, you know, relationship advice, um, you know, organizing holidays for your family, you know, doing all this sort of real like hidden um not really seen intangible work um that that often goes unacknowledged just because women are sort of promoted to occupy that role in in our society you know yeah um so as as what i said to georgia earlier on um and and her we uh podcast was women's voices are kind of we're calling out for women's voices and we're saying that they need to be heard Mm -hmm. so how can we ensure that they're listened to bearing in mind that you know over the international women's day which has now become a week uh, of events it was one of the things that people were saying was you know we're we've been on this journey for 30 years you know people were saying we've been looking for a bill of rights since 1998 and we're you know so how do we ensure that that voice is heard that that voice is listened to that's a really good question, Catherine. I think it's one that, you know, certainly, you know, as you say, women, community groups, uh, lobbyists, etc., have been wrangling with for, for so long. But 
for me, and this is something I've kind of come to recently, you know, just thinking about, for example, uh, the reaction to what happened per Sarah Everard in the UK and, and conversations about men and men's attitudes. I really think that the missing link here is for men to step up or or step down as the case may be and ensure that women are platformed you know so you would you would ask men in the same way you would ask white people like if you're attending a panel for example and you see that it's all men or all white people why don't you step down and, and let a woman in your place or like a white person step down and, and put a black or person of color in, in their place like I think if men become part of you know because this is the thing men are always asking what their place is in feminism and, and what responsibility they should have and you know not all men are bad but you know if we see people you know because it is there's still a glass ceiling men still hold the highest office women are always beneath if we see more men using their privilege to platform women to step back and allow women to speak I think that is sort of the missing link because it's not for the lack of intelligent you know fire branding you know expert women women like yourself Catherine you know Northern Ireland is full of fantastic women but there's yeah. just some disconnect between yes. getting those women to the fore and I do think that men have a role to play in, in doing that you talked about the glass ceiling and, and and in your article you talk about the glass ceiling on the sticky floor Yes. Um, and they're examples that have been used for the past number of years. Mm. So, you know, why have we not smashed it? Or are we are we just the people who clean the glass window and clean the mm -hmm. sticky floor? You know, yeah. Again, I suppose you kind of answered it in your previous question as such that um, women are being excluded. You know, you need to be invited in sometimes to get a place at the table. You do, you do, because, you know, you see that I've seen a lot of this narrative, you know, I'll bring my own chair. And like, that's, you know, that that is, there's so many women who come, they'll bring their own chair, but, you know, really we need people who have more power and privilege than women to be there and to, to be saying, listen, I, I, I am represented at this table. So, you know, I'm going to step back and, and put you in. And that's, that's been part of the solution, I think. And, you know, so much of my article was really inspired by my time at Fwin because I realized, you know, just how powerful um, grassroots women grassroots feminism is and how you know and you and I have discussed this many times about how you know so-called soft skills are often you know um not given the importance that, that they should necessarily by fronting bodies who are again primarily run by men you know so who's setting the agenda of what's fundable um as we know you know a crochet class can do a lot more for cross-community development than any number of you know very posh I'll you know seminars or whatever you know so there has to be a balance there and I think if more women were were you know given a place at the table uh, or platformed or amplified then then we would see that real change well we have a female first minister and deputy first minister mm. yet we have the two child tax or two child cap mm -hmm. and the bedroom tax mm -hmm. there's no gender or child care policies in place and or, you know so what's happening? We do have our top two politicians in Northern Ireland are female. Mm -hmm. So what's gone wrong? Yeah. See, that's another layer, isn't it, to the to the whole glass ceiling thing? Because just because you have women in power doesn't automatically mean that they're going to be 
bringing feminism with them. And I think we can wholeheartedly say that neither of our uh, elected leaders emulate any real tenets of feminism. In fact, I don't think there's there's many MLAs that have a, a, a feminist perspective on um, the situation and, and, and on life here in Northern Ireland. For, to, in my opinion, really, you would see Claire Bailey in the Green Party or uh, Sinead McLaughlin, the new MLA and for the SDLP. And there's a few alliances as well who are very uh, committed feminists and Paula Bradshaw would it be another one. But I think that it's a misconception there's, that there's progress going on just because you've got women leaders because women can internalize the patriarchy and bring, bring all that weight and, and uh, exclusion with them. Yeah, yeah. You know, why do you think we don't have a gender... Uh strategy or child care strategy uh, in place in Northern Ireland. Like I know that I've been at meetings, mm-hmm. talking about meetings and talking about this for like 20 years or more. And we still don't have it in place. You know, like I have anything that this pandemic has done, it has shown that child care is a major, major issue for parents. Mm-hmm. And maybe that going forward that we should Hopefully that they will learn the lessons that that we've learned during COVID because definitely childcare and not having a, you know, childcare strategy uh, is a big, big, big gap in in the whole governance. Absolutely, Catherine. Absolutely. And, you know, I I honestly don't have that much hope for, for that because Northern Ireland is a deeply misogynistic place you know the weight of patriarchy in this particular region you know sometimes it, it's so heavy that it you know it, for me like it affects my daily life the feeling of being pushed down and, and you know silenced and your rights aren't you know being allowed this this is the region where you know we'll have a we'll have the troubles we'll have decades of of civil strife but funnily enough the the main players on the opposite sides can all come together when denying women access to abortion for example you know so they can come together rightly whenever they want to punch down on women um, it's probably one of the things that, that really unify them. And I think that, um, again, you know, it ties into that, um, that emotional and domestic labor that women do as uh, in terms of, you know, childcare, caregiving, grannies. We know so many of our members at Fwin, you know, are, are, are grannies, grandas, and they're looking after kids while, you know, their children are out at work trying to, trying to break even. Um, the, the situation as is, it's untenable, but I don't think that there is a political will there to to make any real change because ultimately I do think that this this whole society is so deeply deeply against women. You see, whenever you look at families, then you know, and who's the power behind families? Mm-hmm. When you look at communities and who's the power behind communities? Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of I wrote a wee piece for the Finger Post as well, and I kind of. Asked the que- asked more questions and I answered anything and 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 you know and one of them was is and does your government reflect mm-hmm. the community in which you live mm-hmm. you know and for me the answer would be no no mm-hmm. and um you know that's yeah. a big issue for a lot of people absolutely Catherine and like do you know you know like I am big into abortion rights you know um so it, it does give you because the the controversial you know some people think it's a very controversial issue and because of that you you really get to the the, the very crux of 
you know, what our politicians are all about. And what I find through research is that, you know, we here in this region, if you're from a particular area, your particular background, you'll vote according to your sort of your line, your green or your orange, you know, but statistically, for example, um, in the PUL community, attitudes towards abortion liberalization are far more adv advanced than in, in the CNR communities. So people in PUL is far, far more liberal, far more progressive, yet they vote for DUP and yet on the other side of the house, they vote for Sinn Féin. And it's it's like it, the, the situation here doesn't actually show the nuances of our society. You know, we'll vote green or orange, because we're going to, that's really the only options open to us. And then usually there's some big controversy stoked up to distract us from the, the bread and butter issues. But if you, if you can peel away that green and orange roof, you see that people here are, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the progressive liberal thoughts extend across the communities, but it's certainly not represented. at For a young, young woman coming up today, what do you think would be the main challenge that they would be facing? For young women today, um, certainly the exclusion of, um, of trans people from feminism is a huge issue for feminism right now, um, including amplifying, ensuring that uh, black women, women of color, refugee women, migrants are, are haired. Um, I would be in favor of things like, um, you know, quotas for, for women and for, uh, for women of color, et cetera, to make sure that there's equal representation. And of course, the, uh, the commissioning of abortion services, which it's actually a one, the one year anniversary from when Robin Swan should have commissioned services um, today. And, you know, we talk about the two child benefit cap. We talk about a government that, you know, rescinds uh, state support if you've more than two children, yet um, is essentially coercing women into abortion because of that. And, and then not providing the, the you know, support for women who are in desperate need, who are traveling during this pandemic, you know, to England in, in desperate situations. It's, it's horrible. There's a lot of battles for young women. Um, yes, you know, um, you know um, the intersectionality um, is, the intersectionality that Georgia talked about is something that um, is vital for oh, yeah for uh, the, the woman's sector because they're not all, they don't all think the same. They don't all look the same. They don't all, you know, um, they don't all get on. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Our organization's better than your organization's blah, blah, blah. You know what's, it goes, what goes on everywhere. And, um, but uh, thank you very much, Mia, for, for taking part. And um, <laughs> it was really good to see you again. Yes, yes. And um, I wish you all the best in your, in your new research post. Thank you very much, Catherine. I do really miss you and hopefully see you all very soon. No problem, mate. Thank you. So, Jared, how did that go? That was brilliant. I love those conversations. Excellent. Um, I think it gives a, it's just a flavour of the stuff that's, that's, that's in the issue. And thanks again for pulling it together. I think it's really good conversation starters, I think, which is what Fingerpost is always about. We're always trying to, to, to push the boundaries of some of the conversations. And I think that the article's that you've managed to gather do that, Catherine. So thanks a million. Really do appreciate it. So did you learn anything through the process, Catherine? I did indeed, yes. I, I really did. How difficult it is. I would not like to be um, responsible for uh, editing anything. <laughs> I really and you've done it before, sure. But I've enjoyed it, I have to say. And I've learned a lot from the process. You know, and um, I'd like to thank everybody that contributed. 
because everybody's coming from a different place. We're all nearly enough saying the same, but saying it differently. Yeah. Uh, which is very interesting as well. So brilliant. Look, I'll just wrap it up there, Catherine. Thank you very much for taking the time to edit it, edit the piece, but also to contribute to a couple of articles that you did yourself. Thanks to Rachel Powell, Dr. H- Kathy Higgins, George O'Kane, who we've just heard from, as well as Dr. Mabel Bryan, uh, the woman from Listen to Yalba Moment Centre, and Margot Connolly as well, who have contributed the poems. And of course, thanks to our funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland. So that's us. You'll you'll hear from us again um, at, for the next issue, which should be on um, rights. I think a further conversation around rights, which has been started through this issue. So thanks a million, everybody. Chat to you all soon. Thank you.